Welcome to Where We Land, a podcast that explores the relationship between Christ, culture, and the church. Hey guys, my name is Aaron, and welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you with us today. I'm joined in the studio today with Miss Morgan McClure. What's up, everybody? And Stephen Vaughn. Hello, everyone. Guys, we're thrilled that you have taken the time to join us for a conversation on critical race theory. So we look forward to having you join us for the whole episode today. Hey everyone, we are so glad to have you with us and thank you for following the clickbait on our conversation today (laughs) for Critical Race Theory. Um, This is, it is going to be a little bit of a heavy topic, so just on the outset, I want to say that, um, so hang with us though, this is a really important conversation um, that's going to be happening today. Yeah, we we tried, we wanted to have this, I think, in a two-part episode, and we felt like there is just so much that needs to really be considered together, Uh, so this is going to be a little, little longer of an episode than we normally do, so doing it this way gives you the opportunity to pause and play at your own liberty, and... uh, continue the conversation with us today. All right. So I think it goes without saying that this is a very prevalent topic in our day and age today, especially over the last year, considering all the things that happened in 2020. And, you know, critical race theory, it has it's come about because these issues that have happened really sparked a new but old discussion on mm-hmm. race and oppression and all of these things that we have, you know, seen kind of fruit of in our, our day and age. And I think specifically one of the biggest kickoffs for this new discussion on critical race theory was, you know, when the na- the nationally televised widespread killing of George Floyd, right? Um, which was horrifically tragic. And right. we all want to say on the outset that we were heartbroken along with everyone else who witnessed and saw this, um, you know, via live stream or when you saw it later on the news and just beginning just to say, um, you know, we feel so deeply um, and we empathize with anyone who was personally impacted by that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so appalling. And I think what, what you saw over the last year was so many instances that were publicized mm-hmm in the news, uh, either live or after the fact in the kind of the same manner. And I think all of those really highly publicized events over the course of 2020, even into this year have really created a, a, a conversation again, really a, a need to reexamine our nation's uh, relationship with race. And mm-hmm. I think all of us on the podcast are just appalled as to what has transpired and are wanting to, uh, this morning, as we kind of have this conversation, to uh, really first admit and, and understand where we are as a nation um, with a topic that is so sensitive, uh, like the one that we're discussing today. Yeah, I, I know, Morgan, you referenced the um, murder of George Floyd, because that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think if you can look at that situation and not come away with some type of empathy, grief, or uh, at least the f- even admitting that that was wrong, I think you have a problem. <laughs> I think you need to look at where you're at personally, because that that's an issue, because that was wrong. And um, I mean, there was plenty of evidence to prove that it was wrong. And we're not here to challenge any of that, because we would 
uh, agree and we would state that, yes, that is a problem. Right. And um, we, we just want to be clear right up front, right out of the gate that uh, on the podcast, we do oppose all forms of racism both personal and systemic. We, we, we would not support that in any way. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to be clear about that up front because we don't want to be um, misquoted uh, or <laughs> we don't want there to be a misstatement. Um, that is what we believe. And that's how we will be talking about this topic this morning yeah. well, from that preconceived notion. Well, and I think it's the understanding as a Christian mm-hmm. that all of us on the podcast are born again Christians. And it's, you know, we, we there's so many places in the Bible that, um, affirm that racism is wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about the book of James in chapter two, you know, he writes to a church and he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And I think mm-hmm. James is just showing that, you know, kind of even in his day, as in our day, uh, racism is an issue. And uh, underlining that is is kind of this idea that by racism, we mean that kind of people would advocate that one ethnic group mm-hmm. uh, is better than another. And, and the Bible teaches that that's completely wrong because in Christ, not only are we in Christ, but but humanity. I mean, we were all a part of one race. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, Paul uh, Paul articulates this in the book of Romans. He said, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth and having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. And so, not only do we as born-again Christians affirm the truth that that we as human beings are a part of one race, but that Furthermore, if a person is in Christ and they have been saved and the gospel has changed their life, that now there is nothing that divides us for those who are truly in Christ. Because Paul says in Galatians 3, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so right on the offset outset today, um, before we begin a conversation on critical race theory, we just on the podcast want to affirm that hey, racism is a sin. And the reason it's such a, a heinous sin is because it disregards God's image in all people. And it begins to uh, really, it denies the gospel that we as as us in humanity are are of one race, but then truly that as believers that we are all one in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's excellent. And um, setting the stage well uh, with a just that's probably going to be the most important thing that we do on the outset of this conversation. Because I think we want to we want to really clearly state that. Um, you know, the reason we even want to have a conversation of this on the podcast today is because, you know, once again, the purpose of where we land is to talk about things relating to Christ, culture, and the church. And this is an issue that that strikes all three of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and what we would affirm as born-again believers is that, you know, a person whose life has really been transformed by the gospel – should truly and really care mm-hmm. about the injustices they see happening in the world yeah. today. I mean, yeah. I think about the Old Testament and um, what was written in the book of Micah, you know, and the Bible says, He has told you, God has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, so many of the things that we've seen happening in our nation over the last year, specifically in many of the demonstrations that have come from these events, um, there's so much, there's so much more happening in those riots and in those times um, 
then it really is much more than simply a march against racism. Um, because what we want to talk about on the podcast today, and once again, we're not trying to broad brush every bit of those uh, things, but I think there is certainly several factors that have contributed to what we've seen over the last year uh, in our nation. And I think one of the ideologies behind a lot of those public demonstrations and, and things is, is, is an ideology of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And like I said, it's not the only thing that fuels that, but that is a part of, of the movement of, of what we see taking place in America today. Yeah, and it's and it's growing more and more, and so. So I said the word critical race theory. So Morgan, help us define sure. what do we mean by critical race theory? Yeah, so critical race theory. Um, if you Google it, you'll find quite a lot of definitions. <laughs> I mean, goodness gracious, um, just as diverse as the you know the people who have developed this theory. It's just as diverse as the definitions you'll find. So the one that I am pulling is from, I believe, Encyclopedia Britannica, which is a pretty reliable source. So they define it this way. Critical race theory is the view that the law and legal institutions are inherently racist and that race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is a socially constructed concept that is used by white people to further their economic and political interests at the expense of people of color. So I think that just won the record for our longest definition on the podcast so far. So let's unpack that a moment here. Unpack that for us. What What is, you know, you read it for us, but, mm-hmm. you know, the view that law and legal institutions are inherently racist and that race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is socially constructed concept. So what is what is that saying? Yeah, I think the first part that you really need to hone in on is uh, law and legal institutions. Okay. So this uh, theory really developed when it was looking at certain laws that had perpetuated a system of racism within a systemic racism, a systemic in, racism in America, in America specifically. Right. So uh, that's very important to understand starting out when you're going to be looking at. The history of CRT, critical race theories, probably how we'll refer to it for the rest of this. Sure. Um, and um, and they also recognize that race, the way that we talk about it, the way that we see it, the way that we understand it in our modern context is a social concept. It's social. It's like a social construct. So there's no biological meaning. meaning that when you're looking at a human biologically you know, race is not those biological factors. It is all of the aspects of their, um, you know, existence in society and how they and how people interact and the the different, um, you know, oppressions that people have faced. Yeah, it would be kind of like attributes that we assign. Exactly. Not inherent DNA uh, things that you're born with. And so it, right uh, meaning by a construct that's socially constructed, it just simply means that based on the experiences that you've had, or based on the people, they would argue, um, the people CRT would say who having elite status have set forth mm-hmm. the laws in place. This is constructed a divide that we would look at as uh, race and these different groups and segregations of people. Right. Yeah, that's great. Good job, Stephen. That was awesome. Uh, I was struggling for that that word there, but yes, assigned attributes I think is a really good way to look at it. Um, and I this is a uh, this quote that I'm going to talk about next came from Janelle George. She was writing for the American Bar Association in her article called "A Lesson on Critical Race Theory." Um, she 
give a really good kind of uh, definition for how it's kind of going in, in our society today. And she says, like any other approach, CRT can be misunderstood and misapplied. It has been distorted and attacked and it continues to change and evolve. And I think that's important to just see how wide and broad this definition has become the hope in crt is in its recognition that the same policies structures and scholarship that can function to disenfranchise and oppress so many also holds the potential to emancipate and empower many Hmm. it provides a lens through which the civil rights lawyer can imagine a more just nation Hmm. so i think that really sets up and frames our understanding of critical race theory, um, at least in its origin. It was a, a way that um, the the law could be changed in order to make systems more equitable and more just to people of minority groups and minority status. Which was a good thing. A very oh, a good needed thing. thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it, specifically what was happening in our country at the time, a very needed thing. Because I think what you see is critical race theory kind of developing in the 1970s. It's mm-hmm. coming out of the civil rights movement. And at that time, there was a lot of activists and legal scholars that were just trying to understand, you know, there was so much progress that had happened during that civil rights movement, but it seemed as if it was really slowly being implemented in society as a whole. And it really led them to kind of ask the question, like, why is there not so much effective change taking place across the nation, especially with regard to so many of the things that happened in the civil rights movement? And so it really was kind of in the 1980s that students there at Harvard uh, Law School, uh, specifically students of color, began to really organize themselves in protests, boycotting uh, Harvard uh, for its lack of racial diversity, both in its curriculum and among its faculty and in the student body. And so a lot of these students who really kind of rallied around one professor uh, there at Harvard, his name was Derek Bell. And uh, Derek Bell was a lawyer, a professor, a civil rights activist. Um, actually, earlier in 1971, he became the first tenured uh, American, uh, uh, the first tenured African American professor there at Harvard Law School. And so it was during really Bell's time at Harvard that he began to develop some new courses that studied American law through a racial lens. And uh, a lot of his students, uh, you know, especially a lot of the students of color, wanted that to be taught among all of the school, uh, among all of the different professors, uh, specifically in the law school. And so Derek Bell has kind of been looked at as kind of the father of critical race theory. And, And so what happened was there was a number of lawyers and scholars and political activists that said, hey, look, we need a new framework to not only combat racism, but the oppression that is being seen in America. And so really that critical race theory movement really kind of organized itself back in 1989 at a workshop up in Madison, Wisconsin, which was just a workshop on critical race theory. And there had never been anything like that before that. So it was like a number of these people coined the term um, and began talking about it as if it was kind of something that it really kind of always been. Uh, And there was a lot of notable people who were a part of that. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who was also one of Bell's students, she was really kind of the one that led the charge in getting that going. But there was other people like Richard Delgado and Stephanie Phillips. And I think Stephanie Crenshaw, even in her own words. Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimber, I'm sorry. I it's okay. Yeah. No, she spells her name really cool, by well, the way. No, too. it is Kimberly Crenshaw, and I apologize. And uh and 
actually I'll just be full on honest like the last four nights Ashlyn has been up like four or five times a night and that'll so do I've a number ar- on you I have already told Stephen <laughs> and Morgan this morning I was like I am so tired and I don't know why no I do know why it's because we love this girl to death but she has kept us up at all hours of the night so Kimberly Crenshaw mm-hmm. all right so Kimberly Crenshaw was one of Bell's students and um I think just hearing her own words might help us understand what she meant when she was talking about critical race theory. Uh, She says this, and I quote, one might say that critical race theory was the offspring of a post-civil rights institutional activism that was generated and informed by an oppositionalist orientation toward racial power. Wow. And so, Aaron, I I think, would it be safe to say that Kimberly Crenshaw was one of the people who took critical race theory um, and she kind of started the progress for it to leave the law books and to get out and disseminate into the textbooks and greater education as a whole? I think, well, I think, I think maybe not so much in that sense as, I mean, maybe now, but I think, um, I think at the time, Crenshaw was somebody that was taking the ideas that had been brewing for a number of years and uh, specifically things that she learned there at Harvard with Bell and began to find others that uh, felt the same way about these things. And so you see it kind of there um, there at in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, they kind of met um, for this workshop. And I think that's where you see kind of the movement being organized into an actual um, concept, if you want to think about it that way. Yeah, so it, it was no longer just this, you know, uh, very intellectual kind of theory, but it it got feet and hands and it started moving. Yeah, yeah, and I think so, but that's a little bit of the history of critical race theory. But, you know, critical race theory goes back so much further mm. because they get a lot of their origins, um, a lot of their ideas, I should say that, from kind of Marxist ideology. What is... Yeah, so if you kind of trace the thread of critical race theory, um, you start to see this this ideology, not critical race theory itself, but the ideologies that inspired it in figures such as um, Malcolm X, you know, Karl, like even before that, Karl Marx. Um, and uh, Marxist is a very loaded term right now, but it's, yeah, it's, it's true. Say, like, probably like a it has a lot word. of connotations but, right now. <laughs> you know, Karl Marx was one who perpetuated this idea of, you know, oppressor versus the oppressed and developed this this understanding of societal structures between people who were in power and those who were not. Right. And that struggle is what furthered things like the civil rights movement, um, where you have Malcolm X, you have W.E.B. Du Bois, you have the Black Panthers, France France. Franz Fanon and Martin Luther King Jr. all, of course, on their own spectrum of understanding inequality and how to achieve equality. Um, but this is where it kind of formed out of. And critical race. Oh, sorry. No, I was just yeah. going to say, because I think a lot of the ideologies and uh, well, a lot of what is at the heart of the theory for critical race theory is not new ideas, no. but they're in a new package. I mean, it's exactly. it's, it's like you're saying, it's things that ideas that had been around for a long time, but they began to, you know, be defined and presented in in a little different way Mm -hmm. uh, with a very political component to them. 
Very much. And they're old ideas that have been recycled and reformed to fit in our in their current context. Right. And so critical race theory itself grew out of something called critical legal studies, which argued that the law was not objective or apolitical. CLS, critical legal studies, was a significant departure from earlier conceptions of the law and other fields of scholarship as objective, neutral, principled, and dissociated from social or political considerations. Like proponents of critical legal studies, critical race theorists recognized that the law could be complicit in in maintaining an unjust social order. And that was, once again, from Janelle George in her article. Um, And so I really do think that 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 departure was so significant because it became so interwoven with politics. Mm. Um, They kind of merged the two together. Right. So um, inequality reproduced by the law. This was a huge thing for critical race theory in its origins. So, So with that, you know, critical race theory would hold to certain things. I mean, it is a theory, but with Mm -hmm. that, it does kind of have some different tenets to it. And I think depending on who you ask, like there's more or less, but there's, there's, there's at least, at least a recognized number of things that they are advocating for. Yeah. So generally, I say they, the theory itself, (laughs) the ideology, generally people that hold to an ideology of critical race theory will say that there is five tenets. Now, what they include in the five tenets is a completely different ballgame, okay? And I think it's helpful to understand what Morgan said, that critical race theory as an ideology has grown from a different foundational ideology into its own way of teaching, way of belief, and kind of worldview in a sense. And it's even kind of grown in the way people would uh, view critical race theory and the people that hold to it. It is a very broad spectrum. And so that's why when we say that there um, is some different tenets, that's why we would say that is because that is a very broad spectrum uh, in the ideology of CRT at the moment. But however, some some would hold to uh, different ones, but there generally is five. So for instance, uh, many would say that there is uh, the first tenet would be the notion that racism is ordinary and not aberrational. Uh, this is another way of saying it. Uh, the Ardaway group or Attaway group, excuse me, would say that the centrality and intersectionality of race, there is a centrality and intersectionality of racism in the culture that we live in. Meaning what? Meaning racism is prevalent. Uh, racism is permanent and it is a part of the institution and system in which we reside in. So basically racism is the norm instead of the out of the norm. Yes. Yes, exactly. It is, it is a part of the, um, it's a part of relationships that we have. It's a Mm -hmm. part of the society in which we live. And it uh, just is, I mean, it it, just is, it just is. And um, the second uh, tenet that many would hold to is this idea of a uh, interest convergence or the idea that there is a um, people will do what benefits them the most, I think Mm -hmm. is the way that I would say that. And for instance, many people would um, would say, well, white people or the elite people or whoever you want to talk about this section of people will will work towards certain things in culture but only to the point that it will help to their advantage to Mm -hmm. their advantage they want to have an advantage for themselves and so that's what they're going to follow out uh, after uh the third tenet that many would uh, agree with would be this idea that the race 
is a social construct. And we already talked about that. So I don't think we need to dive into that much more, but it's the idea that the social construction of race or racism is much, uh, or race, excuse me, not racism is it's social and it's not, um, it's not an attribute. It is socially constructed. You but know? I think, would you say that on under that point that that's where you've seen a lot of conversation today around social justice and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And many, many in CRT would take that and they would, they would say, well, we are going to have a bigger commitment to social justice because race is a social concept, you know, and in a sense too, you can look in parts of culture and you can see certain lines that have been drawn in the sand. And I, even as I, as I read that, I will, I would actually say, yeah, I can see some of what they would say in that, you know, right. like there are socially drawn lines between race that have no business being a part well, of the situation, but certainly. that culture, we as humans, uh, we draw on the line and we create these different lines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so continuing on the, the next tenet that, uh, they would discuss would be this idea of storytelling and counter storytelling. Or uh, another way to word it would be the importance of experiential knowledge. And it's this idea that experience um, needs to be elevated alongside of history and not just experience, but the experience of the oppressed, because that is how we can understand history. So if you tell me a story about a part of history, I'm going to tell you a counter story sometimes based on my experience or almost even kind of like a biblical parable in a sense to help you think through what's going on, you know? And I think this was really, uh, this was one thing that was um, helpful for under understanding um, understanding history in light of more than one perspective, right? Mm-hmm, and right. so I think this was something that this part of critical race theory was really getting at. It, mm-hmm. History did not just happen in one way as told by the one person. One yes. person right. and one group who was, you know, in power or in the majority. Right. Yeah, and which uh, I think is bringing out a good thing. I mean, it's yeah. it's showing a the, History it's, doesn't it's, happen in a vacuum. Right. And it's not just, you know, I think we, we, we talked about that a few, a few episodes back on the podcast where we were talking about just the whole concept of even history and how it, what things are written and what things are not. Mm-hmm. And just because, you know, oftentimes whatever record we have at the time becomes fact as if that was the case. And we, we sometimes miss out on the experiences or the perspectives of other people who did not leave behind that record. Exactly. Yeah, and, and there is a positive there. And this one was really targeted, I believe, at education. It mm-hmm. was trying to prove to education that experience should be elevated in the classroom along with some of these textbooks that they were teaching at the time, you know, and they were trying to bring that in. And there was some relevance there and things that you could learn from that, I believe, as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the last one would really have to do with this idea that um, the the notion that the elite class, or if you want to say say this, um, what I'm reading here would use the term the whites, have actually been recipients of uh, civil rights legislation. And this kind of goes back to interest convergence a little bit, because interest convergence was talking about how there's this dominant class, but it continues this furthering idea that uh, they receive, uh, the elite class will normally receive 
the benefits of what's done to help in social justice. Another mm-hmm. source that I was reading, uh, Payne Geraldo, he actually says that the fifth tenet would be the idea of a critique of liberalism or um, furthering this idea of counter storytelling and really um, talking about the educational side of having an interdisciplinary study in this field, you know, and furthering into these studies and um, using CRT as an educational perspective yeah. to critique what's going on around you, you know? Mm. So all of that sounds like a lot, and it probably sounds like we just, like, shot a shotgun blast that's, like, 15 miles wide, you know? But the idea is... CRT is a very broad spectrum of ideology, and it's grown into that way. What started as a legal ideology that was mainly focused on law, it then um, kind of grew into education, and now now has become a social movement. It has. And so the tenets are very broad. Because you've got to look back a little bit of how it's evolved over the years. And I think, you know, in the mid-1990s, you know, well, actually, you look back, you know, 1989, when mm-hmm. they kind of really organized themselves. And in the mid 1990s, what happened was critical race theory really began to move beyond primarily legal studies. And it really kind of, like you were saying, Stephen, entered into kind of that sphere of education. So that by, you know, the 2000s, there were nearly two dozen American law schools that began to offer courses in critical race theory. But but even since then, I mean, even over the last 20 years since then, uh, critical race theory has expanded way beyond legal studies mm-hmm. and has been used to explore a number of different issues, including gender and um, uh, seg- things relating to segregation. And um, I mean, there's just been so many things that have latched on to the concept of critical race theory And so although it's been around for really a number of decades, it only recently, I think, has begun to kind of really be evident in kind of broader uh, culture, Mm -hmm. as it were. And I think you see that through organizations like Black Lives Matter. I think you see uh, behind Black Lives Matter a lot of the ideologies of critical race theory fueling that movement with hands and feet. they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And I think they're not the same thing. No, they're not. And, and I think and what you see is really this bottlenecking of this theory and how it grew so much and became so um, much more of a social movement than just a law theory. It, one is the advancement of our technology and how widespread information can be. And especially, you know, with movements like Black Lives Matter, who have used technology as an ins- as an incredible platform to, you know, spread their message. And so it, it really truly was a, a bottlenecking sort of evolution it started out you know very narrow and then all of a sudden it just is kind of exploded in its growth yeah so morgan would you take a minute and just kind of as we think back over like the history of critical race theory right Mm -hmm. show us some ways that it's been applied both kind of in its day when it kind of originated and then now in present culture where do we see it kind of at play yeah sure so um I'm just going to keep going back to Janelle George because th- this, like, who is she? I I don't, I don't think I read that article. That this, yes, yeah, she was writing for the American Bar Association, so I'm assuming okay. she has a history in law, um, considering it is the 
bar, <laughs> you know. So um, she, this, this. Uh, you don't just write for the American Bar Association. Write, you don't just get invited <laughs> to do that unless you. <laughs> we're not going to be invited to write for the American Bar Association. You have to have some credentials in exactly. order to do that. <laughs> um, and you know, I didn't. I'm hoping Janelle George is is a woman. The name is spelled J A N E L. Um, I did not do my due diligence to research that. So if one of you guys want to correct me before I embarrass myself no, further, you get, you go um, but yeah. So. So once again, just kind of... She is. Excellent. That is wonderful. <laughs> she um, works at Georgetown University. Okay. Yeah. So she has a great um, way of uh, really describing this theory and all of its uh, components. But um, so once again, critical race theory... Uh, recognized that racism was codified in law, right? And so a lot of these things that we saw, you know, post Jim Crow mm. that supposedly were supposed to be righted and uh, corrected were not. So you still had discrimination in labor practices, um, housing, education, you know, a separate Bank lending. Mm -hmm, separate but equal. You know, right, this, right. of course, everyone has their equal right to education, but it has to be kept separate. And that was a... Um, Oh, goodness. That was, was that, that was not, I was going to say Plessy versus Ferguson, but I don't think that's the right one at all. But that's what Brown versus Board of Education fought against, that idea that separate but equal, okay. you know, was correct. So the critical race theory was a driving force behind fighting these, finding, finally finding these corrections in the law. And one that stuck out in particular was a housing law in Detroit um, in, in 1974 that, was um, that was brought in the case of Milliken versus Bradley. Um, in it, the Supreme Court rejected a desegregation plan that encompassed Detroit's public schools and the surrounding all-white suburbs. So the people of Detroit and, um, you know, the public school system, it had become a majority um, African-American minority uh, area of um, influence and... Um, Part of the resistance to desegregation had caused much of the white population of the city of Detroit to leave and develop in the suburbs. Well, when African-Americans tried to move into those sub suburbs to find better schools for their children, there was a lot of pushback. Hmm. Um, and so this, the Supreme Court rejected a desegregation plan. And wow. that, you know, obviously not okay. Um, Which is crazy to think about, like even in yes. 1974, like. Yeah, and their and their um, uh, affirmation of this came from the idea. The court said they were not required to be part of desegregation because the district lines had not been drawn with racist intent. Wow, um, which is kind of ironic because you very clearly uh, you you can see how maybe the intent wasn't there, but it became evident. And when it was tried to, they were trying to push back against it. That's where you could see the fruit of mm. racism really showing its ugly head. Sounds to me like they took the easy way out. It sounds to they me did. almost like, like that statement in and of itself tells me that you just really don't want to do anything about it. And mm. you want the easy way out because that statement is just so right. Like the, what? Mm -hmm. The people who were not the people were not heard. They were dismissed. And so this is the kind of thing that critical theory. Whoa, critical, <laughs> critical race theory. Critical race theory rose to fight against. And so um, you see that now in current manifestations um, is still addressing 
inequality in education. So um, like what Stephen was saying about a predominance of curriculum that excludes history and lived experience of Americans of color, you have um, deficit-oriented instruction, uh, and it that's where... Um, Children and students who are minority groups are, you know, some t- in in history have been seen as in need of remediation, mm-hmm. which is some of this just reading it is sickening. Um, and uh, so like school mm-hmm. discipline policies that disproportionately affected students of color. Right. And a lot of this, shockingly, did not get revised until Gary B versus Whitmer in 2016. My goodness. Um, where a basic right to education uh, was that was their uh, presentation? It, a basic equal right to education um, mm. was the main cause of this case. So, so what you can see though is that in its origin, critical race theory, at least, and I think we have to make a distinction between the ideologies behind it mm-hmm. and then what it was actually facilitating, like what was happening in society through it. Right. Because I think it it brought about like a lot of need needed conversation and change like of things that like appalling to think about how has it not been mm-hmm. corrected even by that point in I time mean, yeah 1974 that that was the tail end like and 15 even years after, after the civil rights yeah, movement. after the civil rights movement so because those changes had not been brought about that's what you know critical race theory went after right. to bring about those changes that society had kind of agreed okay yeah in, right in its in its essence in kind of the legal sphere Yes. But I think what we see, though, today is, you know, uh, how then has critical race theory been applied kind of in modern day, like in our time? I mean, I mean, I, I mean, you, that is modern what you just referenced. I mean, back in mm-hmm. 2016. But, yeah. but that was also a, you know, a small example of the old critical race theory that was still in that line of changing necessary legislation, where now we see more of this widespread application to other areas not just race and i think that's where in modern context you see much more of this idea of intersectionality yeah so let's talk about that for a minute because i think if you consider critical race theory and its tenets and uh, one of the one of the things uh that one of the founding you know kind of members if you want to think about that way um crenshaw uh kimberly crenshaw she coined the term intersectionality and um, I, have a, I have a definition here from Oxford Dictionary. They define intersectionality as this. The, fe- the theory that various forms of discrimination centered on race, gender, class, disability, sexuality, and other forms of identity do not work independently but interact to produce particulars, per- particularized forms of social oppression. So – she, she was the one who coined the term, but, um, and I think if, if you're listening and I, you are listening, so if you're with us, but uh, for our listeners, I, I think the helpful way to understand intersectionality would be to simply Google, uh, intersectionality chart or look up, uh, an, an image of intersectionality. And what you're going to see is, um, I found a number of them, but it, what it does is it, you know, going back to that definition, it, it's the theory that it's a theory that various forms of discrimination centered on a number of different things, a person's ability, their appearance, their language, their sexual orientation, their occupation, their location, their religion, their class, their identity, their nationality. I mean, their education, their ethnicity. I mean, it's almost however you want to classify it uh, as far as you want to go with it. Uh, all of those things do not work 
independently, mm-hmm. but they interact together to produce a particularized forms of social oppression. So, Stephen, give us kind of a working understanding of like, how do we see intersectionality? Like, give us a good example of intersectionality. Yeah. And basically, the more boxes you can check off the list, in a sense, that are present in your life, the more oppressed you would be, and thus the more need for reform and social justice in your life personally, the more you would benefit from that or need it, right? And so, for instance, like if you, um, if you would be have a different language that you speak, you have a different color of skin, so you have a different race or ethnicity than the majority group, which critical race theory and intersectionality would address as white. Yes. Because in America, because in America, that is the dominant, that is the dominant majority. I like majority better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to, yeah. <laughs> phrase yeah. it other than but how they phrase it. Basically, yeah. they, they would say that it, it would be white majority. And so thus, if you are not white, you speak a different language, you have a lower uh, level of education. Uh, you can even throw in there your sexual orientation and if you are transgender identity. or if you um, have a different sexual orientation. You put all of that together. Uh, you can even throw in ability. Um, and so it's like this widespread thing, but you add up all of the things that are present in your life and the more of those things that you have that is different than the majority group the more oppressed you are the more Mm -hmm. oppressed you are that's what intersectionality would argue for yeah and so this chart that uh you know if you google it what you're gonna see is like a venn diagram on steroids so it's all of these things that are interacting at one time and instead of just looking at race in particular race is just a small aspect i won't say small it is only one it is a one component yes of all of those things yep now i do think though we need to be real though too that intersectionality kind of has grown out of the ideology of crt and has been it has taken many of the thoughts and ideologies and teachings of crt and it's taken them to logical ends like a a kind of a a pragmatic way of being able to implement the ideology of critical race theory is through this uh i don't know if you want to say lens or method of intersectionality and no longer is it just focusing on legislation this is talking this hits every fear of society right no because it has gone beyond legal the, the kind of the legal arena and it's definitely mm-hmm. moved into social uh, social it is, yeah. it is very much a social concept. issue today so so with the issue of with the thought i should say it that way with the thought of intersectionality comes this idea of being privileged right because um for instance what they would argue is that a person who is not a member of an oppressed group is by nature necessarily privileged um, and that is not that that definition is not going to come from um, the ideology of intersectionality. That actually grows out of the ideology of CRT. Um, that if you are an individual of a minority group, you are oppressed, right? And there is an oppressor, and it has come full circle into intersectionality now, and has grown much more out of just ethnicity into a wide variety of things. Mm-hmm. But it's from that concept of intersectionality though with critical race theory that we get concepts in our modern day of like white privilege right which people may not even be aware of that term morgan what what do we mean when Uh, people say that i mean yeah what are they saying so there is um i'm sorry i have like 1800 tabs open so I, (laughs) i had one that has a really good uh description of that um and so the understanding of privilege really 
is about, um, let me see if I can frame this the right way. So privilege is not necessarily that someone uh, from a white, you know, majority experience has not had hardships in life, but none of their hardships or bad experiences or oppression has come from the fact that they are white. So that is in essence a privilege. Their skin color has nothing to do with their experiences. Yeah. Um, another way you could say it would be that a privileged person enjoys benefits of being in the dominant group, um, such as social or economic opportunities, whether or not they have faced oppression or they faced different, um, uh, different struggles in their life. It's not saying that they've never struggled. It's not saying like what you said, it's not saying that they weren't poor, that they didn't grow up without anything. It's saying that because they are part of the dominant group, they have not had to face the same types of oppression based on their ethnicity or based on their race that someone from a minority group, um, has had to face. Right. Yeah. So I think, um, there's one article I came across, um, by two guys, Clay and Smith. Um, they write, they say this, in critical race theory, those with privilege should give wealth, power, and influence to those in the oppressed groups. This is why the group Black Lives Matter uses a black raised fist as it's simple. It represents a call to black power. Now, once again, there is a very clear distinction between critical race theory and Black Lives Matter as a group. But I think you can't get away from critical race. What you have to, at least what we're wanting to understand here on the podcast today is that critical race theory and its ideology is taking people to this concept of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And from that, uh, being able to define oppressed versus oppressor groups based off of that type of pragmatic um, distinction and I think so. The, let's just kind of segue here just a moment. And, you know, we've kind of explained quite significantly what uh, critical race theory is. And I think if there's something we've said that you'd like to, you know, delve into more and can go consider, there is a plethora of, of it really depends on who you ask. I mean, mm -hmm. even people who were a part of that founding uh, group who were critical race theorists, I mean, they defined it all differently. Mm -hmm. So it is very subjective in the sense of what you see it doing. However, I think we need to just kind of survey the landscape and say, you know, where is this going and how has this affected not just our society? Because I think what we want to speak to on the podcast today is, I mean, we can't deal with everything in the world or even in our own nation, but I think we want to think specifically as the podcast as we think about looking at, well, how has this affected the church? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, just in my time of looking over these things, you know, I think you, you look at that concept of intersectionality and you say, well, I can see how a person got to that. But at the same time, it, the concept is so fluid because it changes based off of who is the majority group. Right. And, and it is not constant in the sense of really, well, th this, is, this is wrong or this is right. I mean, it, it really – the the concept of truth in a sense shifts and moves based off of a group of people. And by your – group uh, the group's lived experience exactly and so here's here's mm -hmm. my, you know there's there's a there's a number of issues with critical race theory i think one that i take away when i look at this is um probably the one of the biggest issues that i see is that already you see in our culture today 
people are using intersectionality to silence people of privilege, meaning if you happened to be in that privilege group, then by nature, whatever you say on a topic or whatever you say on an issue is silenced. It's because null and void. It's null and void because you are not a part of the minority group, however that is defined. So I think what we want to look at, though, is what are some examples that are happening in the church today um, the broad evangelical church, because, you know, while the ideology of critical race theory didn't originate in the church, that hasn't kept people from implementing those type of concepts uh, in the church. So what are some things that you guys kind of see? Just, I mean, as we think about the landscape today, wh- where where is this conversation of critical race theory and intersectionality at? Yeah, well, it's uh, in a national, uh, on a national scale, you've probably seen it if you are in church at all, or if you keep up with like religious news, so to speak, um, the Southern Baptist Convention right now is actually in a very like um, in turmoil over tense, it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. place with this because right. uh, you have many of them that would argue for CRT in a positive manner, but then you have a lot of the institutions, such as the seminaries and the uh, president and so on, making statements against. Um, CRT. And I think that you see like turmoil in a national denomination over this issue right now. Right. And um, so Aaron kind of walk us through just like a little bit of like the turmoil you see in the Southern Baptist convention and how that's kind of playing out. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this hits home because we, at least where we're on staff is a Southern Baptist conservative Southern Baptist church. But um you know, you look at what happened a number of months ago during their annual meeting uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, and they're at the Southern Baptist Convention. The messengers at that convention approved a resolution on critical race theory and intersectionality. And there was a lot of people that voiced concerns over what it was and where it was going and wanted to kind of strengthen the resolution in a sense by making it clearer and explicitly uh, more Uh, theological in the sense of what they were trying to uh, articulate and um but but that 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 did not pass it it the the the, actually what happened was the southern baptist convention uh approved a um a resolution on this and uh if you want i'm not going to take the time to define it here but you can go look it up it's resolution nine uh back at their meeting uh in birmingham alabama and but so what's transpired after that was i I think it's the the notion that you know within the southern baptist convention um there it, it, it revolves with messengers from churches and so i think what you see is a lot of churches are divided over this issue of intersectionality and i think there were probably a number of people at that convention that with it being a newer uh, concept, especially something, I, although it had been around for a lot of years, it was something that within the last five years that I think has really gained like, kind of this kind of public opinion in the sense of people even knowing about the term. And mm-hmm. um, I think there, you know, I can't, I can't say, cause I wasn't there, but, but coming out of the convention, the things that you read and things that people were posting, it was like there was a sense that there was a real strong movement to get that embraced within the convention. And yet there were a lot of people that were dis- disillusioned or didn't understand what it was. Mm-hmm. And I think in an effort, you know, I think this is the problem when you enter into a conversation with people on critical race theory, the word they hear is race. And yeah. I think what they hear is 
race is an issue. Like racism is a problem. Um, it is a problem in our country. And I think people want to be a part of that solution. Like they want, they want to see real change. I think as Christians, we want to see. And we should want to see real change. Well, we should. No, I, I believe that. And I think there are people that, that are, are endeavoring to do that. And I think what happens is sometimes they hear a, a term and they say, well, I don't, I don't disagree with that. That sounds like a good thing. Like there, there were legal changes. There are things that need to be implemented, like certainly. But I think people who haven't taken the time to really unpack what critical race theory is advocating for, they don't understand. They miss on seeing really the ideology of what is fueling it and where is it going? Mm-hmm. Where is it going? Um because, you know, there was a statement that you mentioned, Stephen, a number of the schools, Southern Baptist schools, they basically affirmed uh, their statement of faith. And in their affirmation of their statement of faith, uh, they all agreed. Um, they said this, an affirmation of critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. And so um, – and and once again, like I, I read that statement, and and personally, like I agree with that. I think if you think about critical race theory as an ideology, as an ideology, then fundamentally, as a Christian, you have to reject that mm-hmm. because because it that ideology ultimately falls short of the gospel. I mean, it 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 it, it tries to replace the gospel with some other uh, means of, of providing a true solution. And yet, I think what a lot of Southern Baptist leaders faced the, the blowback from was, or pushback from, was the, the, the sense where they maybe were not as empathetic towards what really was happening or is happening in our culture today, maybe as they ought to have been. And I, you know, I, I can't answer for them because I'm not, I mean, I, I can't speak for either of those uh, seminary presidents, I mean, or 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 what I see, but I do know that that is a situation that has brought critical race theory kind of into the forefront uh, for churches to talk about. Yeah, and I think so much of where we see it uh, hitting the ground in, you know, you know, none of us are seminary presidents or anything, but where you see it kind of coming in in the congregational level is critical race theory, you know, and and those who advocate for it, it not only tries to replace the gospel, but even change the way we are to read our Bibles Mm -hmm. um, and the way we are to understand scripture in light of this humanistic deeply rooted in marxism ideology and i do have to say like when that statement came you know yes we agree with it but probably a a, you know a a backlash of that came oh well because they don't agree with that um then they don't agree that racism is a problem Mm. and i think that it's it's and that's why it's so hard to sum up some of these because everybody hears it in a sound sound bite bite. that is the most frustrating thing about our our technological age is that we want it in a soundbite succinctly in one sentence that we can sum up every single nuanced aspect of this mm-hmm. ideology, and that's just impossible. There was a there was an article, though, that mm-hmm. uh, a guy, I think his last name was West. Dr. Ralph West. Dr. Ralph West, mm-hmm. and he was um, actually a professor out at Southwestern. Yeah. And when all this came about, he really wrote kind of an open letter um, describing where he came from and his understanding of these things. And, and while... I personally can't agree with his solutions. Uh, I think he brought out really he, – he kind of really hit the, the chord of 
really what what should have been said or what was the issue at stake mm-hmm. and there was a there's a there's a quote i think yeah. we have from him that i think was really he said timely. and once again he wrote a whole open letter so this is just one line from his letter and while i can't agree with the whole thing this really summed up the whole situation with the sbc he said uh their stand talking about the uh the leaders who put out the statement their stand against racism rings hollow when in their next breath they reject theories that have been helpful in framing the problem of racism mm. which you know we we have to affirm that um yeah. not in the sense that we agree with everything that he said in his letter but you you have to historically looking at critical race theory it did it was incredibly helpful in framing the problem of racism but is it the best and most helpful solution to systemic and individual racism no right and i I think that that's helpful to distinguish because i think we do need to distinguish when we think about critical race theory what it has contributed to and the things that it had helped correct and and also in one hand then look at what is its ideology of what it because in in many senses it is a worldview it is a complete belief system because i think can we just speak a moment like why has this issue of critical race theory and intersectionality created really a tension in the christian community i mean where do what do you guys feel like is the tension where where what's the you know where is this coming well, from, I think I mean, first, um, in, in a little bit of personal experience, w- looking out on the world as it is, like if you don't recognize that there is inequality around, then I don't know what planet you're living on. But there right. is, and but so as Christians, we see inequality. We're like, oh my goodness, and and racism is a sin. But the tension comes from where critical race theory intersectionality tries to deal with it, and that's where it rubs against how the gospel says we are to deal with issues of racism and of discrimination. Um, and it's like you want to, as a Christian, you want to affirm. You want to affirm what their end, what, what the goal of equality is. Right. Because we do affirm equality, but the, the way it's the way you get there, the way you get there and a, a different understandings of what final equality looks like, you yeah, know, right. And that's where it really starts to like peel away from us who hold fast to Jesus's teachings and who follow Christ and um, embrace the gospel. That's where a lot of friction happens. Yeah. I, I think some of the tension too is really coming from this all or nothing mentality yes. that our culture and the church as a whole is really giving into uh, you either agree with me 100% or you don't agree with me at all. Hmm. And that's it. That is a false. Which is so that's, sad, that but it is really where we're That's where literally a false. You can't have that. It's mm-hmm. an it's an incompatible idea with how reason, logic, and just how, how life works. <laughs> I don't agree with the person that I married 100%. And she is my best friend and the person that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And I feel probably the most kindred spirit with in this entire world that I've ever met. I don't agree with her on a hundred percent of things. In fact, we disagree on several things. However, like, do you get my point? Like oh, you yeah. can't agree with someone a hundred percent. And I think that the tension comes because we don't know how to disagree, disagree with well. the ideology <laughs> while affirming the questions that were asked and some of the good that was done. Mm, yeah. And we struggle because we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in a sense but we don't know how to keep the good and <laughs> disagree with the bad. Yeah, because you pick up on the the mm-hmm. kind of the social mantra, and that is like, hey, if you don't 
get united under critical race theory, you're racist. Then you're racist, and and because of that, oh, you must be privileged because you said that. Yeah, which is kind of like turning the whole thing on its head because. Um, I think the biggest problem with critical race theory, and like I said, there are there are there are a lot of things that critical race theory helped um, to change. But I think you cannot come away once as a Christian and you read and understand the ideology of critical race theory. I personally, as a Christian, the biggest problem I have with it is that truth in critical race theory is defined by groups of people. And so um, it, it is by that concept of intersectionality that a, a group of people determine what is true rather than there is this timeless, true, objective standard, and that is God and him, God himself. And, and so truth in critical race theory is so uh, subjective. It's, it, it's yeah. completely subjective based off of the perspective of whoever is in a minority group. And, and stuff admittedly they the i say they i mean the theory it it and the definition as it has changed it, the people who stand for it talk about how fluid and mm-hmm. how constantly changing this is in its in its practical applications right. in its definition yeah which by the way we should have said this probably at the beginning but if you did click on this just because of the title and you haven't listened to our episodes on worldview that we did right before this part 1 and part 2 uh, I believe it's two parts, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a two part. <laughs> the Wonder of World. The Wonder of World. Could I encourage you to go back and listen to that? Because what we're really referencing right now is where uh, we, where we land, <laughs> but where we land on the idea and the discussion of worldview and the idea of truth itself and what is truth. Because you're so right, guys, that in CRT is founded out of an ideology, much of the ideologies that it was founded out of are out of a relativistic worldview. The idea that truth is relative, that truth is experiential, that there is no objective it's standard sub- of truth. It's yeah. subjective based it's off of a group. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's problematic because if it's fluid with this, where does it end? Because we've seen that now in intersectionality that it's no yeah. longer criti- just critical race theory. It's now critical race theory and intersectionality. Well, where does it end? Because it's mm-hmm. going to be so fluid that it just keeps going and going. And now we're not really dealing with the issues that critical race theory started out to deal with. I mean, mm-hmm. we can you can see that in intersectionality that it's morphed into this whole other fight against oppression on so many different fronts that w- what happened to the original questions that were being asked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree with that, Stephen, because I think in all fairness, we have to agree that critical race theory has highlighted some very real problems. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it has. problems that have been corrected and are still being corrected, and people have suffered real and substantial injustices. Yeah, and, and that's, and, you know, I know we haven't, like, explicitly stated it, but just because we disagree with critical race theory doesn't mean we deny the truth that there are people who have been oppressed and are still oppressed, you know, here and worldwide. And and I would even take it a little further, Morgan, like I can read parts of critical race theory and see things in critical race theory that I say, you know what, I, I don't disagree with that. Mm-hmm. For instance, a lot of the ideas that <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is like cracking and going into this weird octave. Um, the idea you just that, going lower and lower. I, I, I try to get an idea. Just so, um, but no, the idea that there are these social divides that we have drawn in the sand to create divides in race. I, I Which agree is racism. with racism. I mean, I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I agree that race, in a sense. It has become a social construct in much of what we view it as. And I don't disagree with that because when I look at the Bible, 
I see one human race in perfection when God first originally created mankind. And uh, but you also in the Bible see where the diversity. Dis, d- well, dis, I was going to say oh. divides were drawn between oh, Jews yeah, yeah, and Gentiles, exactly. male and female. And, I mean, you see all of these divides. And what I love about the gospel is, as kind of a segue here, what I love about the gospel is that Jesus returns things to perfection. Mm-hmm. Galatians without eliminating diversity. Diversity exactly. But Galatians three twenty eight. Uh, I love it. It talks about how there's neither Jew nor Greek nor Gentile. It's it's one under Christ. There's neither slave nor free. And he goes down this entire list. Uh, and, and, and even in that, he's talking about oppressed versus oppressor. There, mm-hmm. there is none. There is none of this in Christ. There is one. There's yeah. unity. And what is happening there? Well, Jesus is restoring things back to the way they were supposed to be. The gospel restores. The gospel mm-hmm. restores to God's original intent. And what was God's original intent? Unity. Sin is what has caused so much disunity, and why? Well, because the problem that CRT points out, many of the questions that it rightly asks, and much of what it it tries to accomplish, the good and the true parts that it really tries to affirm, it's talking about sin. Because mm-hmm. racism is sin. Racism is a sin problem that is furthered out of our sinful selves. And it is it really goes back to the pride issue of I'm better than you. Yeah. And and critical race theory sees that, but because critical race theory does not come from a gospel perspective, it kind of goes a different direction with the answer. Yeah. And the answer is Jesus. The answer is the gospel because the gospel says, hey, you're not better than anyone. And in fact, you're a dirty, rotten sinner who <laughs> Jesus came to die for, and you need to turn to him for grace, and he will restore you to perfection and give you the and, grace you need. But I think in rejecting truth uh, in an objective way mm-hmm. as truth coming from God, uh, mm-hmm. Truth is found in Him and what God says about us. And you look at Genesis, uh, God, you know, in Genesis one, uh, being made in God's image. I mean, as critical race theory would reject, um, really, that understanding of that foundation stance of truth, and they have a different position of where they see truth coming from. Then they have also rejected what the real problem is. And in doing so, they failed to fully grasp the true solution. They, mm-hmm. you know, because I think you hinted at it and you tipped your hat, hat to it that critical race theory in many ways is a worldview. And as like we talked about on the last two episodes, where does critical race theory go wrong? I mean, I think that's as we compare um, the critical race theory to really kind of the true worldview of the, the true understanding of God and his work in this world and, and, and really the need uh, uh, for humanity today. Like, where has cr- critical race theory taken those turns, those distortions? I, I think one of the very first can be in its human centeredness, right? I mean, as a, as a worldview, it starts with uh, humanity. And because of that, like, I think this is a crack in the foundation that leads to the falling apart of the rest of the structure. Because, um, you know, in the in the biblical worldview, in the Christian worldview, um, the meaning for life, the purpose of why it's not about us at all as humans in the first place. And so this this worldview starting out is is focused, like you said, on a truth that is subjective to its uh to you know the humans that it centers around so when you start with a faulty broken human being um then you give them the ability to define define truth then i think 
that to me is one of the foundational issues of this worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fluidity of truth and the foundation's broken. I, I like that more. Yeah, it's solid. focused on the total yeah. wrong thing. Yeah, I would. Because I, so what is what does critical race theory then advocate for as its solution? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, what is it? What does it advocate as its solution? What does critical race theory advocate for? Really, the solution of racism elevating. Uh, in one way, I think it's it's elevating the the races who have been oppressed and therefore, you know, becoming oppressors of the original, you know, dominant, you know, whiteness and critical race theory. But you know, where the gospel would say no, like. It elevates God and Christ, and mm-hmm. suddenly all of us are united at the foot of His throne, um, and He is the one who is centered and the just judge. He will reset the scales, and so it, instead of striving in this very human sense of uh, coming up with all these things to like turn the tables over, now those who have been oppressed for so long, they have the power, and then. But another group is always going to be oppressed mm-hmm. in, in critical race theory. And that's not saying, by the way, we're not saying right there. I know you're not saying this, Morgan. I'm just reaffirming. Please so do. there's no yeah. soundbite theology yes, here. We're just reaffirming right now that we do not, we are not saying that it is wrong to seek um, justice when wrongs are done. That, that's not what we're saying. Justice should be sought. Yes. But what we are saying is, when perfect justice cannot be attained on this earth because perfection is not possible on this earth in a sin-cursed world, the righteous from a man-centered from perspective, a man-centered perspective yeah, yeah. I mean, the righteous yeah. judge will restore true justice even when our justice falls short. And I think I think that that's something that critical race theory does not account for. Uh, because it does not have the righteous lawgiver, we are the righteous lawgivers. And I, I would I would say one other thing where I believe CRT kind of can go wrong is I believe CRT in its essence and what it's become is a it, it broad brushes over too many things that it does not take account for. Meaning it makes very large broad brushed statements about society about culture and about people that just are not, they, they aren't factual and they're not true. Yeah. Um, we were kind of talking a little bit about it, about how they would argue that the majority group, because you are in the majority group, you you are born with this implicit um, bias from the moment you were born on the face of the earth. Well, that's just, you, that's just, you can't argue that statistically, you know, and while there are people in majority groups who, yes, they have, they have been oppressors and they are guilty of injustices to broad brush an entire group and say this entire group based on whether it's the color of their skin or the things they own or whatever. By being in that by group, being in that right. group intersectionality. they are wrong and they are oppressors and they are unjust yeah. and they, they are proponents of injustice and they are racist. That, As a that's whole. a broad brush statement that right. is just not provable or possible and it's wrong which and tim, and, i'm sorry to interrupt you sorry uh and tim keller affirms you know what you're saying tim keller wrote this fantastic article about different views of justice and postmodern critical theory was one of them and he said it's just too simplistic it does it broad brushes and it neglects many aspects of social realms and you know um seeing humans as inherently blank slates you know and um like only so any pathology that comes along anything wrong where it's crime it's poverty it's oppression there's only one 
thing wrong with that and it was social policy in the marxist idea and mm. it's and it's it's racist it's systemic racism for critical race theory that's yeah. the one ill and it's just simply not yeah right right so i think what we've highlighted and what we kind of come away with is you know crt really highlights a real problem but i think the solution ultimate solution that it advocates for it will always fall short of that yeah uh it, it can't it can't achieve what it really wants because you know as what we have to come back to is that the solution uh, to racism and injustice and all of those things is ultimately found in christ it's mm. it is ultimately found in him um you know it 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 goes back to to what paul uh articulated there in in the book of romans where where he talks about that that uh that that god made from one man every nation of mankind and and in christ those walls of division that we have created to divide us are are truly destroyed in the sense of christ has united us but the gospel has to then be lived out through the lives of individuals yeah. to where they themselves are relying on uh, the truth that is found in Jesus. And so, you know, you can just look at the New Testament and there is countless moments where you see racism popping up between Jews and Gentiles, between clean versus unclean, between Jews and Samaritans. And I mean, you know, but what you see being revolutionary in a society in the first century comes through the gospel. It's mm -hmm. it's through an understanding of of where where does racism come from? Well, it it comes from a heart of 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 pride and a and a distortion of 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 what God has said and what He um, would have to be experienced mm -hmm. among humanity. It's 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 the age old you know trying to put us put somebody above one another based off of the color of their skin or their uh, experiences. It's it's our very sin nature, and I think that's one of the incoherencies that comes along, but one of the fundamental understandings of the gospel is that there is no one, no natural human being who is qualified to you know, say something about injustice or you know, talk about um, some social agenda without recognizing like, our common sinfulness. There's nobody who's a clean slate who can speak to that. And especially not, I mean, it not especially, but just it doesn't matter, you know, how oppressed you are or how privileged you are. You are sinful. And it all goes back to our, our sin nature. And um, I, until like that. It's so, I think sometimes we're so blinded to how sinful we are. Exactly. I think it, it is one of those things that like until until you're confronted with in either in the mirror or by something that somebody said, like sometimes there's there's things that that you you um, tend to embrace without ever recognizing, uh, and then when you see it, it's like Lord, forgive me of that, or mm -hmm. I need to repent of that. And but the gospel does that. The gospel so clearly shows us the truth that is found in Jesus, and it and it shows us our own selves of 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 how we as broken people want to distort that truth. And uh, to elevate ourselves rather than to, to come yeah. to Christ. And so can I go back to that quote? You, I think you still have it brought up from West. Yeah. Um, I'd like to read that again because I think as we kind of conclude our time here today, 
What we want to affirm is, you know, the gospel truly is the answer. But I think he had a good way. Can you can you read that quote yeah, again? He said, um, their, stand, their, their stand against racism rings hollow when in their next breath they reject theories that have been helpful in framing the problem of racism. So hearing that, I think, you know, he does strike a chord that I think uh, as the church and, and those in the church, we need to recognize. it. We, we cannot simply beat a drum to the stance that Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus is the answer, and then we're unwilling uh, to get involved in, in seeing true uh, justice and seeing true – I mean, because, I mean, that was God's command even in the Old Testament. I mean – even in the book of Micah, right? Mm-hmm. So we, so I think the, my question as we kind of wrap up today is, well, where do we go from here? Like having talked about all that we've talked about today and, and hearing kind of that statement, how do we as the church, I mean, and I, I, we can't even speak for the church. I think we're, right now we're just speaking for ourselves. So yeah. like, what have, what have you taken away from, you know, c- reading and studying this topic and, um, Kind of, you know, where do we go from here in the sense of affirming the gospel while at the same time being advocates for seeing true change? Yeah, well, you go I, first. I, yeah, I'll go first. I would say that you need to have some personal uh, time with the Lord. <laughs> uh, I would encourage you to get off of Facebook because uh, nothing good ever comes from Facebook. And, uh, <laughs> except for pictures of Ashland, except for pictures of Ashland <laughs> yes. and live streams just, of churches. Um, but seriously, on a, like on a real note, stop posting on social media and go pray and deal and deal with the Lord about your own heart and what maybe this podcast has caused you to ask questions about. Um, every person has to answer for their own actions. <laughs> uh, the Bible is very clear that you will be judged based on your actions, not your forefathers' actions. Uh, you will be judged on your actions and not your culture's actions. And while you are maybe a part of culture, and if you didn't do enough to uh, stand personally in that culture, you might be judged for that, but you're not judged based on others' actions. And so I, I would just say this, that there there does need to be an empathy for those who have faced injustice as a Christian. If you cannot empathize with that, there's something wrong there uh, because there should be a empathy as a saved child of God that you can look upon someone who has faced oppression, on someone who has faced injustice, and that you can empathize with them and say, you know what, what happened to you was wrong. It was not right. And not to sugarcoat it, not to make an excuse, not to be awkward about it, but just to be straightforward. That was wrong. You know, Uh, I think sometimes we get awkward and we don't know how to deal with situations. Just be straightforward and honest and empathize and Mm -hmm. love on people. And um, if, if you, if you personally have not done that or are not doing that, I would challenge you to get that right in your life and to deal with the Lord about that. And before ever making public statements or talking to others about it, you need to deal with your own heart on this matter. And uh, maybe you have faced oppression and uh, you need to uh, ask the Lord to help you forgive those who have oppressed you. Um, because forgiveness isn't just for the oppressed, it's for the oppressor as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible teaches that. So, so having embraced that and, and, and you know, having considered that, like, well, then what do you see then as kind of the path forward of affirming the gospel while at the same time being those 
proponents for justice. Yeah. Once dealing with the personal level of where you personally need to work on things, I believe moving forward, it is, it is advocating for the gospel and graciously, again, let's go back and say that word once more, graciously, graciously standing for truth while loving on people and empathizing and seeking gospel change and gospel restoration within people's lives. Because I think coming away from this, I can't look at critical race theory and come away with it and say, you know what? I agree with that ideology and that educational theorem. And I'm going to, I'm going to be a hundred percent behind it. I can't do that because I don't believe the gospel or the Bible will allow me to a hundred percent support that ideology. Now, do I, do I say, Hey, it asks some good questions. Do I say that maybe some good has come from? Uh, sure. I'm not going to deny that, but as a whole, I cannot support it. However, what I can say is, you know what? Some of those questions that it asked were real and the pain that people have faced is real. And I need to graciously speak truth from God's word, the objective standard and I need to seek gospel restoration, not man's restoration, not not human, uh, not even human uh, reparation. How do we how do we fix this on a human level? You know, that's a different topic. But that's not my main focus as a Christian. My main focus is gospel restoration. And as I am restored by the gospel, I believe God will work through His agents of the gospel to change others and to bring peace, to bring unity. Hmm. And only when that happens, can there be peace and unity. Um, if we seek a man-made uh, theory or theorem, it's going to fall short. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Morgan, um, what about you? What's your um, takeaways from this? Yeah. Uh, I can't add much else to what Stephen said because it was, it was so good and um, so helpful and really just um, illuminated by scripture. But I would say that um, Christian, take heart because in light of all of these things and the recognition of injustice and inequality and racism, our God is not only the just judge, but he is our good father who doesn't just leave us baffled with how to deal with things like this. I just keep going back to Micah 6, 8. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what is what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness or to love mercy in some translations, and mm. to walk humbly with your God. And, you know, in, in, to err on being too simplistic, um, acting justly means walking with your, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ and even those who are not believers mm. um, to to stand against things that are not just by the Lord's standards. And he has very explicit standards of what is good and what is right and what is not. Um, To love mercy, I I do not think that even the church does a good enough job of loving mercy Mm. in our society. Um, Mm. Even later in scripture, in in James, I believe, mercy triumphs over judgment. Right. Because God is the one who judges. Right. And through his transformed people who have been um, brought to life through his spirit that lives within them, we are to be merciful because until the Lord returns, there is 
God's mercy is for everyone. His love is for everyone to come and to transform them as well. Um, and until the Lord returns and does judge the earth, there's still time for that. So right. love mercy. And then I think walk humbly with your God. Uh, it doesn't say walk humbly on your own and be ashamed and have your head down. It says walk humbly with your God who leads you, who guides you in love and in truth and in all wisdom. Um, and have humility when um talking with people who have different experiences than you who because i was saying before the podcast every single person is just as complex um and deep as you are everyone has a thousand different reasons for why they think the way that they do um why uh they they act and think and say the things that they do because um, of their experience in this broken earth and how they have found their way to the point that they are. So without humility, there is you will not go far as a Christian trying to um, stand for truth and also love. Mm. Um, it takes drastic humility, but thank God he gave us a perfect example in Christ of what mm. that kind of humility looks like. Yeah, and Right before I turn it over to Aaron here to give his takeaway, one thing you said was so, so good. If if you aren't talking to someone or you have never talked to someone who maybe has faced oppression or injustice, and yet you're stating all of these things that you believe about this and you're posting on Facebook about all these different things, right? Could I challenge you to maybe stop that and to go have some personal, maybe uncomfortable conversations with someone, but in an honest, humble, and gracious manner? Mm-hmm. Um, because I believe moving forward in a pragmatic way, it's when we talk things out face-to-face, one-on-one, and we deal with the issues that might be there, and then we seek gospel resolutions together. And I think earlier I had said gospel restoration, but that only happens when we're having the honest, humble, and gracious conversations with the opposing parties and not just punch using each other's punching bags and being like publicly, you know, you're wrong, you know? Uh, but I love what you said about that. So Aaron, where, what's your takeaway here from this conversation? Well, I've, I've really (laughs) gone all over the places I've considered this, but I think as I take away where I come away from is that in terms of critical race theory, I have to reject the ideology that it is advocating for as a Christian because it ultimately does put forward a different gospel. It puts forward a different solution. But I do at the same time recognize that through critical race theory, there have been some really necessary changes in our nation uh, that needed to take place. And I think looking on it on the standpoint from a Christian, I feel like probably the church is – actually, I say this, the church has not been as empathetic toward the plight of others and the circumstances that people have experienced and faced uh, as they should be. I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge to each person to recognize that they were made in the image of God and that somebody that they are arguing against or they, they see their worldview so different than their own, they, they so often set themselves up against them in opposition rather than thinking about, well, no, that's a person who was made in the image of God and a person for whom Christ also died, mm-hmm. and that the love of Christ compels me. Well, it compels me to enact change and justice and to, you know, like what you were saying. I love the the version you read out of there because it, it is to act justly. It's mm-hmm. not 
it's not just to think about justice or to hope for justice, but it is to do justice Mm -hmm. and to love kindness and to walk humbly. And all of those things are actions. All of those things uh, produce change. And I think, you know, we, I think the church probably has been in a very big season where in the American church, Christianity is highly academic. It is, it is highly intellectual and so much of education and information has created, I think in our nation particular uh, a, a, an emphasis where where the gospel saves me spiritually but it has not changed me physically mm. and i think if we are willing to embrace the gospel as a whole then we have to be willing to say no the gospel does change things and it does impact people on a very personal level and it and it creates change even within our own you know senses i mean it 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 affects me it it changes me it, and i think you know even thinking about it this week i was like you know christians so often can talk about what Jesus had saved me from. And they, you know, when we talk about a person's testimony, it's like, well, what did Jesus save me from? And we, we always, we always talk about, like we should, like we should, we always talk about, you know, sin and, and being saved and, and going to heaven and, and all of these things. But I wonder how few testimonies there are in the church of the difference that Jesus has made in my life right now. You know, like I was thinking about this, like so often, you know, you hear people talk about a testimony of, oh man, Jesus saved me out of this or he saved me from this. But it's like, but what has the gospel kept me from? (laughs) What does it keep me for? Yeah, well that, Mm. but like, but what am I not doing Mm. today that I probably would be doing apart from the gospel? Mm. You know, and I think it, I think it, it is all of those ugly things that we see in humanity that rear its ugly head. And it's like, you know, if a person is not compelled and they're not, uh, really under the influence of the Spirit of God and how they're living their life, then they're embracing the, – the tendency is to embrace an attitude of pride or to embrace an attitude of, of, of you know, the, 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 the attitude of racism that would look at somebody in a disparaging way. And I think, you know, what I did have to come away from, though, in my time of considering critical race theory – and I just think there's this is and for me, I think there's a big difference between responsibility and recognition. And and I what I mean by that is I you know, I read that that article by West and I'm like, man, I so agree with the note that you're hitting, but I cannot agree with you in the sense of the the solution because I think, you know, and and as you mentioned it, Stephen, like we cannot we cannot um to you know, the Bible talks so much about that God judges a person individually, and every person's going to stand and give an account before God for the things that they contributed to and and their responsibility. And I think the problem with critical race theory is what it does is it's trying to advocate for oppressed groups to uh, be given some type of reparations or some type of thing that that was of a previous generation or of, of systemically of a hundred years or more. And, 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 and how does that all get shaken out? I, I think, I, I think I'm also saddened too, where, where sometimes you see institutions or places that did have a problem with racism in their history and they didn't own the responsibility. Like even when given the opportunity to own the responsibility, they, 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 they sidelined it. And, and that, 
that really just kind of breaks my heart because it's like if given the opportunity and you're a part of an organization or an entity that was a part of things like that and you haven't fully embraced your responsibility or the responsibility of those who came before you, like in the position that you're now in, like I, I just think you're, you're not doing justice. You're not advocating for justice. But I also think there's a difference between responsibility versus recognition. And I think like you were saying, Stephen, I personally have to identify for me what is my responsibility in all this and how ought to I be involved in uh, empathizing, not just with those who have experienced things like this, but being an advocate for seeing things be different. But there, there is an aspect, I think, that even though we as a whole, I shouldn't say that, even there, there might be an instance where you personally have not contributed in responsibility to these things, but that doesn't mean that you cannot recognize what has happened and truly have an empathy um, to others who have experienced that and want to um, really do something about it. And so, um, you know, I think I think the reason this is such a hard issue is that, and we're going to talk about one, I think, on the next episode. I think we're going to actually do an episode on Black Lives Matter. But I think there is a there is a sense where you want to affirm uh, what what it's trying to achieve, yet you can't affirm how it goes about it mm-hmm. sometimes. And I think critical race theory is one of those things. Um, and so that's just where I am. That's where I where I land. So um, any any last minute things before I sign us off here? Um, I just uh, one of my favorite sort of perspective reorienting like <laughs> understanding that things will be made right and um is, is revelation 7 9 um and it's you know when when john is having his vision up in heaven uh and he says after this i looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation and tribe people and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the lamb they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who is seated on the throne and to the lamb and that just really it does it for me because salvation does not belong to a person salvation does not belong to a group of people Hmm. salvation belongs to our god and he has won it and he offers it and at the end, we're, he's not lifting up one people over the other. He has, um, he he will be at the center, and every single nation, tribe, people, and language will be unified, um, and just covered by his blood and his love. And that's that's what gives me hope <laughs> at the end of the day, in light of all of this. And that's great. That's a great reminder. Well, thank you for sharing that. Well, listen, we're so glad to have you a part of the conversation today. We hope that this has spurred some personal uh, conversations for you and uh, has encouraged you to kind of delve deeper into some of these things and um, that if you are a Christian and and the gospel has changed you, that you would be even more uh, encouraged to to seek out justice uh, in the day in which you live. Well, thank you for listening to Where We Land, Christ, Culture, and the Church. Listen, if there's anything that we've talked about on the show today uh, that you would like to know more about, we would love to hear from you. And so send us your thoughts, questions, and feedback by sending us an email at podcast at whereweland.org. Well, listen, we're looking forward to having you join us here next time on the podcast as we have an episode on Black Lives Matter. We'll see you then.